0: Welcome to the Other Half of Church Podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. So over the past several episodes, we have highlighted the different ingredients that need to be present for healthy soil so that spiritual fruit can grow in our lives and in our communities. And one of the topics that keeps coming up in church life right now, and honestly in our culture, is narcissism. And I feel like that's a label that gets thrown around a lot, and we don't understand it very well, or at least we think we understand it. but I imagine there's more layers and levels to what it is than maybe what we understand. So maybe could we start out uh from a brain science perspective, what is narcissism?
1: Oh, there we actually have a very simple answer: the narcissism is the inability to respond to a healthy shame message. Hmm. So instead of looking to correct the things that would otherwise bring shame, we avoid it and uh, usually reverse it on the other person and say, no, there's nothing Hmm. wrong with me. There's something wrong with you.
0: Now that that pattern sounds all too familiar (laughs) of... Hmm something that I see readily in others. And if I'm honest, I probably see a lot in myself, of uh, having a hard time accepting shame and correction and pivoting it back onto the person is, are there degrees of narcissism?
1: Well, um, first of all, yes. Um, the, the question really is how often do we do it? Hmm. Um, So the degrees of narcissism would be some people do it all the time for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And some others uh, would just do it occasionally and certain, maybe on certain areas or certain topics. Um, And generally there's a good relationship between how often we do it and how far we are from knowing our true self. Mm -hmm. So if we have some idea who our true self is, um, then when someone else says, oh, that isn't who you were meant to be, we go, ah, yeah, you know what? I keep forgetting. Every time, you know, we get into this situation, um, you know, I'm when I'm dealing with a, a male authority figure, you know, my experience with that has been pretty negative. <laughs> And so when they tell me something, I immediately get defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of things. We recognize that in ourselves. So, uh um, Self-awareness is very low in people who are high in narcissism. Uh, You'd think that wasn't true, but what happens is that your left hemisphere creates an uh, sort of an ideal version of who you want to be. Mm -hmm. And so you end up protecting and defending that artificial view of yourself. you, You could call it a false self, except for the fact that, you know, a person may not know anything else. Hmm. Um, And the problem with being a narcissist is you can't have a group identity. There's no one who are your people who are entitled to tell you how we act and how we behave. So around here, I'm always the boss. I'm telling everybody else who we are and how we behave, but you know, that makes everybody else into my servants or slaves, but they don't make them my people. We don't have that kind of attachment. Um, going on so there's a rigidity about uh this narcissism Now, at one point in history and it wasn't very far back there was something called the narcissistic personality disorder Mm -hmm. and the diagnostic people have decided to eliminate that as a disorder because uh, you find degrees of narcissism across uh, all kinds of other problems You know, and it's sort of imperviousness to correction. You know, I won't take a shame message. Um, and so it's now a characteristic of all kinds of problems you can have. You can have it with some narcissism and and some not. And if you go to the European researchers, you find out, uh, that they pretty much have bundled narcissism and self esteem together. Hmm. So, they would talk about positive forms of narcissism that we'd call self-esteem and then toxic forms of narcissism that become uh, the idea is that, you know, you like who you are so well that you won't let anyone uh, make any corrections or improvements to it. But uh, so there isn't even an agreement between all the professionals. That's one of the reasons why some of the research on narcissism is um, has been contested because uh, if you're measuring it, so it includes self-esteem, you want to have some. But Mm -hmm. if you're measuring it in terms of just resistance to anything better, uh, you really don't want to have any of that. So what are you talking about? And um, So the term is a little misleading, but in Scripture, the term that um, is used by Scripture is, Stiff-necked, that's how we usually translate it. It's the refusal to show shame. It's the no one can tell me there's anything wrong with me. A stiff-necked person won't bow their heads, which is what your body does. The ninth cranial nerve when you feel shame loosens the muscles in the back of your neck. Your head drops and go, oh, you've seen it, right? You can picture that. Oh, yeah. So if you stiff your neck, you won't drop your head. You won't feel shame. That is what the Bible talks about, uh, that we're talking about with narcissism here. It's refusal to say, no one can tell me there's anything wrong with me. I won't take that from God. I won't take it from you. Um, I won't take it from, from my people either.
0: I think one of the tragedies over the past decade, just as I've served in the church, is seeing this feel sometimes like a caravan of leaders who have flamed out and who are displaying exactly what you're talking about, this inability to show shame. It's like they, even in whether it is adultery or embezzling or abusing power or just molesting kids. Right. And, and it seems like there's something about the way we do church that either it attracts or it feeds narcissists? Like, why, why is it that so many ministry leaders end up showing these signs?
1: Well, yeah, the, we couldn't have that many uh, in leadership if we didn't uh, select them. And hmm. y- using whatever measures you want to, it seems like the rate of narcissism in in Christian leaders is about 3,000% above the average population just using oh, wow. the measures we have available. So we're clearly selecting for them. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's uh, two easy to identify factors involved in that. First is um, if we make a Christian life all about the left hemisphere and being right, Mm-hmm. We're looking for leaders who are very convinced that they're right yeah, and do being right very well. And that favors uh, narcissists because this artificially left hemisphere identity they've created is created around all the right beliefs and all the right things and all the right strategies. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and the best way to uh, win in Christian circles is to be the one who's right, who's biblically correct about everything. We, mm-hmm. we quickly forget that the people who are most biblically informed and felt they were right were the Pharisees and uh, scribes in Jesus' yeah. day. So, um, But we, we follow the same logic, so we, we're, we're confident in that. And the second is, um, well, it really traces strongly to the Vietnam war Hmm. Uh, during the Vietnam war, the way that you got out of the war, the only one of the very few ways that you could, if you didn't have a physical disability was to uh, go into the ministry, go into seminary. So seminary students were exempt from the draft. So if you didn't want to run to Canada, you went to seminary and, Mm -hmm. uh, the people who did uh, not necessarily went there because they were feeling called from God, but they graduated with their degree and they wanted to be professionals like all the other professionals. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about professionals is you don't have close relationships with anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you're, you're, you don't get emotionally involved with people. And so, Almost every seminary that I know of nowadays teaches that pastors should stay sort of emotionally distant or disconnected from their congregants in mm-hmm. some way and remain at professional distance and professional behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as you're professional and not relational, all the relational gauges of uh, is this person able to connect with us, become one of us, uh, gets taken off of the selection criteria. So we mm-hmm. don't really look at people's relational skills and abilities. How well, how well can you hesed? Doesn't become the central question. It's how, wh- how strong are your beliefs? How good is your training? How strong is your anointings? Um, how engaging is your public speaking? Right. Uh, and have you got to, uh, good methods? Yeah. You know, the sort of uh, the opposite of what we say in rare leadership. You're not developing. Uh, you're managing a program and delivering solid teaching, as opposed to developing a people and and creating solid, uh, strong Hesed relationships. So, mm-hmm. uh, with that as our criterion, it shouldn't surprise us that the star performers are going to have a huge number of people with strong uh, kind of uh, narcissistic tendencies. Uh, And furthermore, uh, you probably know that pastors face their share amount of criticism, right? Right. So you want somebody who has uh, enough of a, a crust, you might say, that Mm -hmm. they can take a lot of criticism without letting it throw them off. Right. So The kind of leader that perseveres is the one that shrugs off all the people, Mm -hmm. things that people say are wrong with him or her and just pushes forward. Well, now we've got a pretty good um, open field, let's say, for Mm -hmm. uh, someone who can create the image we want. We want them to create the image for our church and furthermore, there's this very strong factor in American Christianity in particular that we want our pastor to make us look good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We want it to look good to the community. We want to look good to denomination. We want to look good to our children. We want to look good. And so our own narcissism is pushing pastors to be more narcissistic than they ever were before. So, uh mm. <coughs> Until we do something with our own narcissism, uh, we're not actually going to select a different kind of leader.
0: And so it really comes back to what we've been talking about in the previous episodes with the soil. Because if you can have a culture of healthy correction where you process shame, it doesn't seem like a narcissist is really going to enjoy a community like that.
1: So is there any hope of curing a narcissist? Probably the answer to your question is no, Uh, almost no counselors. If you want to cure a narcissist, um, you know, they're not going to take correction. Their their whole identity depends on you not telling them there's anything wrong with it. So how do you beat that system? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, on the other hand, there is a cure for communities that grow narcissists. Hmm. If we grow joy, narcissists kill joy. Yeah. If we grow chesed, narcissists don't uh, respond to chesed because it uh, means you've got to love people when they don't like you and the, you know, and, and take correction. And we grow a group identity. We're people who love our enemies. Uh, then all three of those um, make it very, very difficult to grow a narcissist, to pick one as a leader. And it helps all of us individually to deal with our own little bits of narcissism because most of the time our enemies are the people we live with. I mean, Mm -hmm. the person that becomes an enemy to me most often is my wife. (laughs) Yeah. All she's got to say is, did you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, I realize, no, I didn't uh, And right away, she feels like she's not on my side. She's not there for me, right? That's -hmm. that's that enemy feeling. It's just so common that we do it all the time. We just don't call it enemy. And I need to be corrected. So if I deal with that in my own life, if I let my kids tell me, you know, you're not being a good dad right now, and I go, huh, I think they got a point there.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, You know, then we become a a community where we won't, We won't grow them. It's just not a good garden for narcissists. We pluck that weed when it's little. Now, if you have someone who is growing some hesed attachments, you actually have some room to talk to them about, we're the kind of people who do this and that. And it'll have an influence on narcissists. You can actually, and we've seen this, when the community changes to be a a not a garden for narcissism, but a garden for loving our enemies and forming chesed, we have seen a number of narcissists follow the trend and and eventually move out of their narcissism. Mm. But the cure was to cure the community so that it was no longer a good environment. When you try to cure the narcissist without changing the community, uh, their immune system just sort of locks down and fights you tooth and nail. Hmm. Um, so we actually, you cannot really treat a narcissist, but you can treat their community in such a way that they may give up their narcissistic ways. Uh, it's also the risk always that they'll go out and say, you know, they, they left and as scripture says it's because they weren't one of you to begin with. It's like, hmm. well, I don't want to be those kind of people. And if you don't want to be the people of God, uh, even God won't make you. Uh, you know, won't force you to stay.
0: In this episode, Jim Wilder explained that narcissism is the inability to process healthy shame, and that in a church culture that is devoid of the four ingredients of healthy soil, a narcissist can thrive. As a church, we need to practice the teachings of Jesus to love our enemies. In the next section. I'll discuss with Michael Hendricks the toll of narcissistic leadership and how churches can recover and thrive by building the four ingredients back into their soil. So early in the episode, I was speaking with Jim about what narcissism is, and I I love his definition of narcissism is the inability to process healthy shame. Yeah. Practically speaking, what does that look like in a church?
2: Well, that answer to that question is something he kept talking about, healthy shame, and I would ask him, or, or narcissism, and, I, and what healthy shame, how it's related to it, and I would ask him about what's the definition of narcissism. Because um, most of us think it's something like it's a person who, who is grandiose, who wants to be the mm-hmm. biggest personality in the room, and someone who has little empathy and, uh, you know, we kind of have that image of the, you know, the CEO or the big lawyer or something. And, mm-hmm. and that's when I asked Jim this question. And he laid the definition you just said, where it's a person who can't, cannot, essentially cannot process shame, healthy shame relationally. Mm-hmm. And so, and I talk about this in the book too. One of the, one of the skills in, in discipleship that are really related to the right brain versus the left brain is helping people increase their emotional capacity. And what that means is that you can go into these six big emotions. I'll repeat them again. It's sadness and anger and fear and shame, disgust, and hopeless despair. Um, those are six big emotions our brain recognizes. And when we increase our capacity, there's exercises you can do that increase, that, that can increase your capacity, capacity around each of those six to be able to go into them and stay relational. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're not relational, you know, what happens a lot with shame is when you feel shame, I I don't have the capacity. I switch off and then I go into something called enemy mode
0: mm-hmm. and then I
2: just want to win. Yeah. And, uh, and narcissists tend to live a good portion of their life in enemy mode. They're always wanting to win.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so this is really a... a a church DNA shift we want to make that we, you know, and there's a lot of group identity around this. You see, this is all tied together with the four soils. You know, joy means we're happy to be together and it builds our love, hesed bonds, our attachments to each other. And as in, in this loving environment, we build our group identity and our group identity then allows us to correct each other in a healthy way. But all this together also makes our community very, very resistant to narcissism because narcissism requires all these other things of the soil not to be there for them to, to kind of be winners.
0: How does that look when, when the, let's say it's a narcissistic leader, their definition of winning is closely tied with advancement of the gospel, as they would put it, right? or the acceleration of the kingdom. I You could say it's, growing the church size or Absolutely. being able to donate more to a nonprofit. It's like things get so twisted up. I think when you're talking about winning as a church, because it so often looks good, right? The goals they paint. It's not, it's not like I want to grow my social media account to a million followers. Usually it's a good goal that they're putting in front of you. And that's the tricky part of it
2: because it plays tricks in your mind. Cause you're seeing the great things the ministries are doing of these people. Mm-hmm. You're seeing these great visionary statements and this big personality charging boldly forward um in and attacking tackling the big problems of our society or growing the church or planning campuses or reaching out into the slums of inner of inner city Mexico City or whatever it happens to be.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: you know you start scratching your head, and yet you see the way the person treats people, yeah. And so it's like this you know dichotomy, there's these two things that don't go together. Um, one of the big things to ask yourself is, has, has this person placed the importance of ministry above relationships?
0: Mm-hmm. Which
2: is something Jesus never did? This doesn't mean that ministry is not important either. It doesn't mean what, that we devalue ministry, but always relationships in God's kingdom are placed above ministry. Because ministry is, foundationally, from the beginning into the end, relational, and so for being non-relational in our ministry, then we've, you know, we're, we're essentially doing what the Apostle John in, in Revelation says to the Ephesian church. He says, "You've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten that love is the first part of everything." Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that first love, you know, John basically says, you know, Jesus says through John, you, you've. You know, everything else is like a, a, a clanging symbol. I don't. I don't even want to listen to it. No matter. How, and he talks about really good stuff. You know, really important things for the kingdom. Uh, God plugs his ears if it's not founded and first and foremost relational.
0: And that that's such a difficult concept. Um, so I've been a part of the leadership of a couple different ministries and organizations, and. That, that concept sometimes is turned back around on the leadership of because you're asking me to do something that I don't want to do, you're placing ministry above relationships. And it's almost like a a defense mechanism on the other side to say, you shouldn't push me past where I'm comfortable. And if you're doing that, you're putting ministry above relationship.
2: Right, and what we do in those kinds of tricky situations where you're one trying to you know tease everything out is is to look at Jesus. Yeah, he often pushed his disciples into situations they were not comfortable in. Yeah, and yet he always did it in a very relational way. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is this is again a part of discipleship where we tease these things out, and we in you know there's exercises we did as well, and in, in a training we did where. Where we l- would look at specific self-justifications. See, that's that's a really important topic with a narcissist. Is they they're very very good at what we call self-justifying.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Self-justification is basically you know you trying to correct them and they and they come back and put a shield up and say, you're not going to correct me. As a matter of fact, the problem's with you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so we had a list of self-justifications that you often hear in ministry. Mm-hmm. And then we, and then we would say, okay, come up with a healthy shame message for this. Yeah. One of them, here's one of them. It says, uh, the self-justification is this, you are out of line, you're rebelling against God's authority and you should not speak about me that way. Yeah. And then we'd get in groups of five and say, okay, make a list of the weaknesses of this statement of this self-justification. Because we believe self-justification is a weakness masquerading as a strength. Mm -hmm. Narcissists often have very, very quick answers, very, very quick self-justifications when Mm -hmm. things come up in meetings, et cetera. And and so it looks strong, right? But it's really a weakness. And so the first thing we did, even before coming up with a healthy shame message or anything, we said, well, come up uh, with the weaknesses of this. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it, you know, someone saying to you, you're rebelling against God's authority and you should not speak about me that way. That's really a fear-based statement, like that person is afraid you're going to say something about them, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also pulling God into the equation, saying God is on my side, so you need to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And this is a very common thing in ministry, unfortunately, with some leaders, and it's very, very ugly. Um, But we need to actually train ourselves to see it and not get flustered, um, and then in our groups, we would say, okay, what would, what would a strongly bonded, hessed loving community do to make sure this, this weakness, this fear weakness, and all the other weaknesses we spotted in this self-justification, to make sure they don't kind of take roots in our community and take over, because they will.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so we would
2: practice these things, and it's only through practice, too, that you don't get flustered when it actually happens to you, and you know, in some meeting and the uh, the leader of, of the ministry you're in or the head pastor or whatever turns to you and lobs one of these self-justifications, you know, this big pastor who everyone knows and who's kind of the big personality, they lob it at you. And all of a sudden it's easy just to crumple
0: mm-hmm.
2: unless you've done some training around it.
0: So let's say that's the, the situation and you're in a, a board meeting and the let's say it's a senior pastor. Uh-huh. Uh, you say something they disagree with and they, they throw that message at you. Right. That they are, that authority is given by God. They are the authority. You need to respect and listen to them, and it is uh, ungodly for you to raise an objection like you just did. Right? How do you, in a healthy way, not give ground, um, and yet also be a <laughs> be a healthy, mature individual? Right.
2: Well, that is, you know, essentially the one of the central um, points of my book is that mm-hmm. you need to have good soil. If you have good soil, mm-hmm. in other words, with that pastor, you have some sort of, a, of, of, a, of an attachment love bond, some sort of one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's where I would start. And I would say, you know, say the pastor's name is uh, Bill. OK, so I don't mm-hmm. know anybody named Bill, so I'll just use that name. I would say, you know, Bill, we've gone through a lot together and I love the way you lead this church and I really enjoy all that I've learned from you. Then we, then we would pull some group identity, but you and I know that in God's kingdom, there aren't people that are on God's side and other people are not on God's side. And there's, you know, there's nobody who, who's off limits as far as, you know, pushing back or at least questioning something that we think might be wrong. We believe everybody's on limits because that's the way a healthy family, our church is supposed to work as a family. Mm-hmm. And so we you know we don't make these statements that God is on my side, so you need to be quiet. That's not the way God's kingdom works. Um, on the other hand, I could be wrong. you know, I want to bring this up openly and I could be wrong too. so feel free to let me know if you think I'm being wrong or unfair or maybe even too blunt. and I'll mm-hmm. take that, but at the same time I, I would at least encourage you to listen because I think it's I think it's something that that is valid and I think is actually could be healthy for our church for us to listen to this.
0: Yeah, that seems to be what you just said, it does reinforce the relationship first. It says we are we have this strong bond together and from that relationship let's solve this problem.
2: Right. And group identity. Don't forget group identity. I pulled Mm -hmm. that in as well. Who we are. You know, because that really is the key. You know, that's what that's where the soil works. Joy you need joy to build Hesed attachments, the loving attachments. Mm -hmm. You need Hesed to be able to build a group identity that's actually going to work as far as character formation. And then you need those three in order to correct someone.
0: Right. So I think the question also that people are going to be asking is if you're at a church or you're serving at a church where somebody seems to be exhibiting the, the signs of narcissistic leadership, Yeah. what would you recommend they do? is it a place where they can reform from the inside or do you just need to, to cut your losses and try again?
2: Well, you know, there's probably valid situations where you would do either of those.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's very, that's where it comes very important to be able to listen to God's direction in this. Um, but let's say you're, let's say God was very clear to you that he wants you to stay in that church. Okay. Right. So that kind of simplifies the other stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: A narcissist will never ever heal one-on-one mm-hmm. from, from their counseling, A narcissist can heal other areas of life, but the narcissism itself doesn't heal in a one-on-one situation, whether it's counseling or one-on-one kind of confrontation or anything. A narcissist heals only with a community. Mm-hmm. Um, even And there's even brain science that probably Jim could explain more accurately than me, so I'll kind of give the lay Terms, but that our, our hesed, our joy and our hesed attachment to a person actually is in a deeper part of the brain than the part that will be pulling out these self-justifications and trying to defend himself and everything. Mm-hmm. And so and that's, that's the narcissist shield is I'm going to win the argument, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm going to out self-justify you and I'm going to have the quicker answer. You know, a lot of times narcissists are very quick with their words and very quick with their reasonings. And so they can kind of just flood you. With mm-hmm. words, right? That's why the first thing I do is appeal to our hesed, because hesed's deeper in the brain, and it actually gets around their defenses in a neurological sense. Mm-hmm. When you can actually uh, verify and validate, and even kind of remind the person of, of our attachment, and that you're not you're not condemning them, you know, and we're very careful to not let our correction of a narcissist be anywhere near condemning. Um, but then also group identity as well is pulled in about what kind of people they are. If we if we start say if if the uh, the leader starts saying hearing what kind of people we are over and over again, maybe even outside of a conflict, that Mm -hmm. starts really building the the soil, working in the soil to a point where he or she may be able to accept a healthy shame message. But you know, one of the things you can do is start working instead with the community that surrounds the leader, this leader. Mm -hmm. Start building the joy level the, the 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 love bonds in that group and with the leader and start building up the group the group identity very solidly and when the the this leader is surrounded by a, by surrounded by a community that loves him or her is happy to be with him which again that's joy I'm happy to be with you but also has a very solid group identity around some of the behaviors you see being exhibited by this leader so instead of us just like rebuking the leader and then getting him fired. We stick with him and and love him, but we also don't let him or her off the hook. We don't give him a pass, Mm -hmm. but we also, we've practiced this. We've practiced how to correct people in a very, very uh, healthy shame way where it's very much a reminder. You know, we studied a lot of these scriptures where Jesus does it. I I just, I would meditate on a lot of the scriptures. There's some really good ones in our book where I kind of take you through really slowly how, how skilled, you know, Some one of them, I even call it pure wisdom. Jesus is exhibiting pure wisdom here. Look at the way he corrected this person. Um, really just absorb Jesus and get yourself around more mature people that do this. Um, you know, it's a long-term thing. It's building a community that can handle the stresses of a narcissist without breaking apart and without going non-relational and not going into enemy mode. Hmm. I
0: just wanted to ask one final question of my experience is that this is much more of an acute problem in Western Christianity, and particularly American Christianity, than it is worldwide. Uh Why do you think that is? What's What's the difference in culture and attitude and maybe even theology that the American church is a place that narcissism can thrive in and how do we humbly learn from other people to do this better well i'm not sure if
2: narcissism is a worse place is worse here in the united states than it is worldwide i suspect hmm. it's worse but I, yeah. I honestly don't have any real hard data to back it up so okay. all i can really say is why is it so bad here Um, I've done some, you know, I've lived in other countries before as well and done quite a bit of travel Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I've, I've seen some, some signs of narcissism overseas as well, but in general, uh, um, other communities are, are more family connected and -hmm. churches more approach, um, a family level of, of bonding than, than we see today in our churches. You know, a lot of that is, well, there's a lot of reasons for that, you know? Um, Jim talks about the enlightenment really placed um, truth and being correct about doctrine higher than uh, being, knowing how to love well. Mm. You know, we don't want to really see one being true, being right, you know, having good doctrine is important. But again, you know, just like we don't want ministry to be above relationships, We also, we also don't even want uh, doctrine to be above relationships. I mean, we always affirm love and then we work on doctrine. We did. Do, we don't drop either one. A lot of times, you know, we've, we've, placed being correct is so important that we we self-justify that we don't need to be loving to someone who who maybe doesn't agree with us in all of our doctrinal
0: points. And that's that kind of a non-relational like Christianity. Mode. Me. Does does that remind you of enemy mode? Yes. So
2: and you know we can doctrine can even lead us into an enemy mode where we stop being loving instead of knowing how to correct um Doctrine in a way that's very, very loving and very affirming. You know, we think we have to get mad and be almost like a policeman around doctrine rather than it's very similar to any kind of other moral problem is that we we affirm our, we're happy to be together. We affirm our, our Hesed attachment, our loving attachment. And then, and then we remind them, you know, we're a people that place a high value on scripture, on the words that Jesus taught us. And then maybe go delve into it. But we're also very, very careful to stay relational. That is Mm -hmm. the key, staying relational. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of what happened in our country as well has to do with uh, transformation that happened in, uh, um, you know, people leaving the farms, going into the cities, working Mm -hmm. in manufacturing firms. Uh, You no longer work with your parents or with your family, Mm -hmm. you know. Parents work in one city, the child goes to a university and then moves to another state, you know, halfway across the United States. That's all that's very common here. And those is that is not as common in the rest of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And so that creates a separation, a lack of then kind of a family coherence. And some of that's been then the, the church, instead of going against the current, has kind of gone with the current. And, and, and you know, a lot of our... Not all, and there's some very good and healthy family oriented churches here, so I don't want to just be a downer, but there's many churches that don't really emphasize or know how to emphasize creating
0: a family level of bonding in church mm-hmm. yeah, and it seems like that's the the cure, and that's what you've been talking about through this podcast through the book that the church needs to be that place where those strong relationships are formed, where that group identity is strong where joy and hesed and correction all come together to create this nurturing environment that helps people grow. And that's where we're gonna find the real transformation is when we're able to bring those elements together.
2: Yes and all four of those elements are are deeply relational. Joy, our attachments, our group identity, and reminding each other, which is healthy correction, reminding each other when we forget who we are. They're all deeply, deeply relational.
0: You've been listening to The Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.